We are this morning in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, as we're continuing our series on the one and others in the New Testament. And I just want you to know something that you might be interested to learn. Did you know that y'all is a biblical word? Were you aware of that? Now, I'm I'm serious. It may not be in your English translation, but the reason I say this is uh, in the Scriptures, when you see the word you, Y-O-U, often that word is a plural you. So, for instance, when when Jesus in Matthew 5 says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, he's not saying that I, Jeff Berger, individually, that I am the light of the world or that you are the light of the world. He's saying that we, the people of God, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are the light of the world together. And so when I'm reading about this in one of my commentaries, it says the reason you don't see that is the English language does not possess a plural you. And then, and I'm quoting here, it says, unless you happen to live in the southern United States. So, yeah, that's us, right? So, literally, if you, if you translated Matthew 5, literally, it would say, y'all are the salt of the earth, y'all are the light of the world. Boom, right? I mean, it, didn't that feel good? So, you can go out and quote that. You can put that on Facebook, and you'll be absolutely accurate and, and faithful to the Greek text and to the Word of Jesus. But the reason I'm telling you this is not to say that we're somehow superior or try to make you feel better about living in this part of the country. I, I'm telling you that... Because we as Americans in the 21st century, we have a way of reading the Bible that keeps us from seeing the full truth sometimes. We read as individualistic people because we live in an individualistic culture. Just to to explain what I mean by this, in ancient cultures and in many cultures even today, for instance, uh, growing up, your child or you as a child would probably not choose a a profession that was different from your father or your mother because that might bring disgrace upon your family. Even if it was a a higher socioeconomic level, you wouldn't want to do it because it would look bad on your parents. Every decision you made was made with your parents in mind. Every decision you make is made with your village in mind, with your nation in mind. You're not doing what's best for you. You're doing what's best for everyone. We as Americans are different. We expect our kids to go into the field that suits them. We expect them to make decisions that are best for them, even if it's not what we want for them, as long as it's a good decision, as long as it's a wise decision. Okay, so the problem with that is when we're reading Scripture, we tend to read Scripture through an individualistic lens, as in, this is a word specifically for me. The Bible is my life manual for success. If I follow these principles and apply them faithfully to my life, then I'm going, to have a, I'm going to marry the right person. I'm going to have a happy family life. I'm going to have a, a fulfilling career. I'm going to have plenty of money and good health, and everything's going to go great. And that's not really what the Bible is about. Yes, if you follow the commands in Scripture, you're going to end up making good decisions, and that's going to benefit you. And yes, absolutely, individual people are saved by Jesus no matter what community you're part of. But when you read the Bible and you really look at those plural yous, the y'alls in Scripture, you might say, what you see is Jesus is not just about cherry-picking people and saving this person and that person. He is really creating a new race of people. He's taking people from every cultural group, everybody who will believe in Him, no matter what they look like. He's taking them out of their context and saying, you come be a part of the new people of God. He's building something new. 
And we get to be a part of that. And that's why it's so significant that 59 different times in the New Testament, the phrase one another is used because God cares intensely about how we treat each other. And so what we want to talk about today is that one another that says live in harmony with one another. Literally, it means be of the same mind, but Paul uh, puts it in this context, it's, it's translated live in harmony, and I want you to think about harmony for a moment. I know we have some musicians in the room, but most of us probably aren't. I don't know if you've ever paid attention to what harmony really is, but if you've ever uh, played in a band or sung in a choir or an orchestra or, or sung in a, you don't sing in an orchestra, do you played in an orchestra or sung in a quartet, so to speak, any, anytime there's harmony, everybody's not playing the same note. That's the interesting thing about harmony. Everybody's not playing the same note, and yet they're not in competition with each other. If I were in a choir, I'd be a tenor, a really lousy tenor, but I'd be a tenor, and I would not be there hoping you'd hear me sing. My hope would not be that you'd go home saying, man, that Jeff's got a great voice. My hope would be that I would sing exactly the note that was needed so that everybody in the choir together sounded good, and that would be true of the basses and the altos and the sopranos too. It's not about me, it's about we. It's not about how I sound, it's about how we sound. That's harmony. That's what Paul's talking about. Let me put it a different way. So, my favorite football team, several years ago, we got a new coach. And this new coach came in and he was a total contrast to the last one. We had a very fatherly type guy, a very laid back guy, a guy that everybody loved, great personality, just didn't really get the results on the field. And in comes a guy who's totally different, very type A, very driven, a literal genius, a guy who comes in and says, I'm going to change everything about the culture of this program. I'm going to work these players like they've never been worked before, but if they'll stick with me, if they'll just buy in, if we stick together and we're a family, then nobody can stop us. And he really did it. I mean, they worked hard. That Some players quit. They couldn't handle the workload. And, and, but those who stayed, every game, I, I'm not making this up, before every game, he would stand outside the locker room and literally kiss every player on the cheek as they walked in, as if to say, you're mine. You're my boy. I'm there for you. And it worked. We went from being a very average team in one year to being the number six team in the country. And stands were packed, we're beating teams we're not supposed to beat, and all the players off that team, all the good players, are coming back the next year. So we're thinking, this is wonderful, this is incredible. But the next year, halfway through the year, everything fell apart, and we went from being a great team to being average again. Well, what happened? What happened was, it became obvious that our genius coach was already interviewing for other jobs. And he denied it. I mean, he would say when asked by reporters, when standing in front of his own players, don't listen to what you hear in the media. We're still a family. We're still a team. He was still saying that the very day his agent was agreeing to terms with his new program, which has the letters U and T in their title. Not that I'm bitter. Not that I'm bitter. Actually, I know. That's the way the game's played. My team just hired a coach from another school this past year. I know that's how it works. My point is... It doesn't matter how smart the coaches are, no matter how good the players are, if somebody knows, if the people on the team know that somebody's in it for themselves instead of for the whole group, it doesn't work. And how that relates to us as a church is this. Let me just say that more than any other church I've ever been a part of, First Baptist Conroe has everything we need to be the church we're called to be. People uh, from other churches who come and visit here and, and meet me, they say, man, what a beautiful church. And I say, yeah, but you should see the people. They're even better. 
This is a great group of people. There are gifted people all around this room. The, the staff that I get to work with, there are fantastic people here, all called to do the Lord's work. All of us. There's nothing holding us back. But even though we try our best to preach the true gospel, even though we've got the power of the Holy Spirit upon us, even though we've got everything we need, if we don't live in harmony, it is no good. It will do no good. No one will hear. No one will believe. No one will be saved. We must live in harmony with one another. Now, what does that mean exactly? As you look at these, this passage, uh, this is a long passage of Scripture, longest one we're going to read in the series, and there's a lot of different commands in it, but I want you to hear the heart of Paul. He says in verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, you can see that if I took the time to really explore every single imperative in that passage, we'd be here for half a year at least, and it would be fruitful time. You can see that there's several one another's just in that one passage, but I think they're summed up by that statement, live in harmony with one another. How do we do this? We're going to try to gel these down into three specific principles that it takes for you and I to be the kind of church that sings the kind of music that the world doesn't hear anywhere else, that draws them in, that brings them to salvation. And number one, we see that we, we have to be responsible for one another. We are responsible for each other in a church where there is harmony. We are our brother's keeper. We are our sister's keeper. A lot of the things in this passage sound like things you would say about your family if you're in a healthy family, right? Because in a healthy family, it says, love one another with brotherly affection. I have one brother. He and I couldn't be more different. I mean, we are, we are so different in so many ways, and yet I love him because he's my brother. He loves me because I'm his brother. In the same way, there are people in this room who are probably so different from you, y'all wouldn't associate with each other in any way if it wasn't for Jesus, you would not be in the same room. It's not that you hate each other. It's just, I don't have anything in common with you. Well, I don't have anything in common with you. We have nothing to talk about. But we're brothers. But we're siblings. But we've been drawn together by Christ. And so we love each other with brotherly affection. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to practice hospitality. In a healthy family, if one of the members of that family can't pay their, their light bill, the rest of the family pools their resources and helps them out, helps them through a rough patch. If, if I lost my home, I'm sure that the members of my family would take me in. And we're called to be that way 
as the body of Christ. That word hospitality. Hospitality means opening your home. How often do you open your home to others? Let me ask it a different way. When's the last time you opened your home to someone who's never been there before? Someone new. Maybe a church member, maybe a friend, maybe a, a next-door neighbor, somebody who doesn't even know Christ. When's the last time you brought them in? Yeah, I know. I know when you get home, you like to just strip down to your pajamas and, and Netflix, right? And, and yeah, it would mean cleaning the house, and it's lots of trouble, but that's what it means to live in harmony, is to have an open home to others. Having them in your home takes work, but it's work that's worth it. It builds relationship that can't be built in other ways. When he says rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, we do that with our families. I, I'll just tell you, and if you follow me on Facebook, you know if one of my kids does something the least bit impressive, I'm posting it, right? I, I want people to see. At the same time, if one of my kids is hurting, it keeps me up at night. And we should be that way with one another within God's family as well. And can we be honest about something? It's not so hard to weep with those who weep because most of us are not hard-hearted people. But it's a little harder to rejoice with those who rejoice because you hear they're going to the Caribbean for 13 days. It's hard to say, man, I'm so happy they get to do that instead of saying, why don't I get to do that? You hear that, that he's getting married to this beautiful godly woman and you think, well, I'm still single. Why can't that happen to me? Instead of, I'm so glad he found a good person. We have to change. You know, Jesus was teaching one day when they said to him, Lord, your, your mother and brothers are here. They're here for you. And Jesus knew, because he's Jesus, that they had not come with good intentions. They had not come just to see their, their son and their brother. They came because they were ashamed of him, because they were uh, uh, concerned about him, because he was doing things they didn't understand, and they were going to try to take him home against his own will. And Jesus looked at the people around him and he said, these are my brothers, my sisters, my mother. And he wasn't disowning his own family because he continued to love them. They eventually believed and followed and, and became part of his movement. But what he was saying was, what we're building here is a new kind of family that will have impact even greater than your blood. So that if you are in a family that's dysfunctional, you've got a healthy family here. If you've got a family that has rejected you on earth, you've got a family here that will never reject you. No matter who you are, where you're from, you've got something significant. And his followers bought into that to such an extent that when Luke was writing the history of the early church in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 44, he said those first Christians were all together and they had all things in common. This isn't my house, this is our house. This isn't my car, this is our car. This isn't my money, it's your, our money. We love each other. We're responsible for each other. That's what it means to live in harmony. Secondly, we practice radical equality. So there's an old story. I'm sure it's not true, but it makes a good story. So listen up. It makes a good point. As uh, older man who was praying one day, and he felt led to visit a certain church, to actually join this certain church. And it was one of those churches, the biggest church in town, white marble uh, pillars out front, just beautiful church. And so he goes there dressed in his Sunday best. He's walking up the front steps of the church on Sunday morning, and a deacon comes out and meets him before he gets to the door and says, excuse me, can I help you? And the man says, yes, sir, I'm, I'm here to attend church. I've been told by the Holy Spirit that I'm to join this church family. 
And the deacon says, well, friend, um, can I ask you to do something for me? Before you come into our church, would you meet with our pastor? He's in the office tomorrow starting at 8.30. I'd love for you to talk to him. So the man's a little uh, taken aback, but he decides, well, I don't want to make waves. So he goes home, and the next day he gets up early and goes to the church, meets with the pastor at 8.30 a.m., and the pastor, after he hears what the man has to say, the pastor smiles and says, friend, Far be it from me to think that I'm smarter than the Holy Spirit, but uh, I just have to tell you, there's not a lot of people like you in our church, and I happen to know there'd be uh, several fine churches right across the tracks from us where you'll feel much more comfortable. The man is heartbroken. He gets up and he leaves and he goes home and in tears he prays to the Lord and he says, Lord, I don't understand. I, I really, I'm just convinced that I was following the leadership of your spirit, but that church wouldn't have me. I, I don't know what I did wrong. And for the first time in his life, he hears the audible voice of Jesus speaking. And Jesus says, don't worry, my son. I've been trying to get into that church myself for years and they won't have me either. Again, probably not a true story but based on truth, isn't it? And y'all know me, y'all know by now that this is something I'm passionate about, that every church, including First Baptist Conroe, every church ought to be the kind of place where anybody can walk in and feel welcome, where anybody can walk in and see somebody who looks like them and say, okay, there's people like me here. The church ought to reflect its community. I base that on the fact that the early church, the first church in Jerusalem in the book of Acts was a multiracial church. So was the church in Antioch that called out Paul and Barnabas to go preach the gospel as missionaries for the very first time. So will be the church in eternity, the church in the new Jerusalem. According to the book of Revelation, there's people of every tribe, every, ra- every nation, every race, every tongue. If you don't like that, eternity is going to be a real drag for you. I'm sorry. And Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2, that Jesus came to break down the dividing wall of hostility that separates people from people based on their ethnicity so that God is making one person out of many, one race out of many. In Galatians 3, he says, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And that should be reflected in our churches. And it's not right now in most of our churches. It's not in our church right now. I also know that it takes time for that to happen. It takes a long time. It takes more than just a church that is welcoming, which I believe our church is. It takes us being intentional, forming friendships with people who aren't like us, so that those people will feel comfortable coming to church with us. It takes people who don't look like us, who are brave enough to sacrifice the comfort they feel by worshiping with people just like them to come in and be a pioneer of sorts and say, well, I'll feel kind of lonely for a while, but I'm hoping this will grow into something. It takes time. Fortunately, I'm hoping and praying I get to be here a long time, and I'll get to see that through. But here's what I want to say. Paul is talking about that. That's something he is passionate about. That's something I know you're passionate about, many of you, because you've told me But he never mentions race in Romans 12. He does in several other passages, but in Romans 12, he simply says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Don't think better of yourself than you should. Look to those who you're tempted to look down on, to those who you think don't really measure up to your standards, and choose to spend time with them. Because Paul knows Yes, there's racial division in the world. There was back then and there is today. But there's all kinds of other divisions too. Think about it. 
In our society today, we've got white collar and blue collar. We've got conservative and we've got liberal. We've got latte sipping hipsters on the one hand and we've got gun rack on their pickup truck rednecks on the other. And we've got, we've got people who live in lakeside condos and people who live in trailer parks and every one of them is equally valued in the sight of Christ. And every one of them should be, feel equally valuable in this church. The person who didn't finish high school and, and is struggling to find work ought to have just as much value to First Baptist Church, ought to find their place of service, ought to know they are significant just as much as the person with the six-figure salary who tithes and who is gifted and intelligent and attractive. They all ought to have equal value in the church of God. And let me just, let me get very blunt with you for a moment, okay? So I, I know I've only been here three and a half years, and so I may not have earned the right to talk about such family business as this, but I did it in the early service, and they didn't stone me, so I'm going to do it here. When I first came to First Baptist, I had several different people inside and outside the church say, you know, First Baptist is known in the community as a country club church. And I said, oh, Really? And he said, yeah, you've got to be a certain somebody or you're not welcome. And I've found that not to be the case. I've found that this is a place where anybody can find a place, where anybody can feel welcome. This, there's not a snootiness about this church. And yet, there are some in our community who have that perception of us. I'm not sure why. I don't know where it came from. That's not my concern. My concern is, what are we going to do about that? That's not a reputation we want. How do we change that? The only way to change it is to be different. The only way to change it is to be conspicuously different. The only way to change it is to love people better than anybody deserves to be loved. And that means that we all have a job to do. That means we all have to get out of our comfortable rut and choose to befriend people who we wouldn't otherwise befriend. Let me be specific. We all sit in the same place every Sunday. I'm one of them. I sit in the same place. We all eat lunch with the same people after church. We all hang out with the same gang in the atrium between services and after service. So let's break that cycle. Let's cross the sanctuary today when church is over and talk to somebody you don't usually talk to. Let's come next Sunday. I challenge you. Next Sunday, come with a mission on your heart. I'm going to find somebody who I don't know. They may be brand new. They may have been here a long time. I just didn't, never met them. I'm going to find somebody I don't know, and I'm going to make them feel welcome. I'm going to strike up a conversation. I'm going to make sure they know. If nobody else talks to them, I will. It means, get ready for this, sit in, sit in a different pew sometime. I, I promise you, one of these days, I'm going to have a, everybody sits in a different pew Sunday. I, I'll have to be here longer than this before I dare to do that, but I'm just challenging you to do it next Sunday, and if the person who usually sits there complains, step back and let the wrath of God be upon them. I can't remember who said this, but it's true. Every church says it's friendly. That's true, by the way. Every church I've ever been a part of, you ask them, what do you love about church? We're such a friendly church. We're such a warm church. Every church says it's friendly. But people aren't looking for a friendly church. They're looking for friends. Do you know the difference? If you don't know the difference, then it's been a long time since you joined a new church. Because people who, who visit churches, people who 
try a new church, what they find is everybody's nice, everybody's friendly, but nobody wants to be my friend because they already have their little gang and they don't have room for me. And sad to say, every church I've ever been a part of, I've known people, families, couples, individuals who've come, who said, well, I like this place, everybody seems nice, but I just can't find my group of friends. Nobody will let me in. And that includes this church. I've known people who visited this church and loved it, but left because they just couldn't penetrate, just couldn't find their group. Let that never be said of us again. Let that never be said. That's on you and me. We have to choose to make new friends. We have to choose to let people in. We have to practice radical equality and say, you may not look like me. We may not have anything in common. You may root for that other football team, but that other football team, there we go. That's my mic. But I still love you. You're still my friend. We're still brothers. We're still sisters. Number three, if we want to live in harmony with one another, we have to live out the gospel in costly ways. So, I don't know if you picked up on it, but here's this long passage about living in harmony with each other, about how to live with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We get that, right? Yet, there's several different commands in there that are about how to respond to people who persecute you. I'm assuming Paul's not talking about your fellow Christians. So, why is that in here? If you want to hear my opinion, and whether you do or not, you're about to, um, here's my opinion. I think it's because Paul and the Holy Spirit, more importantly, wanted to make sure we're not building the wrong kind of community. The wrong kind of community. See, in, in cultures where Christians are the minority, where we are ostracized, where we feel attacked, there's a tendency to build a fortress mentality that the church becomes the place where we go to escape. We come to escape and, and huddle with people who, who are like us, and we feel safe there, and we can sit around and we can talk about how evil and wicked and nasty the world is and those awful people out there who hate us. And I've had people, not at this church, but I've had people criticize me because I'm not harsh in the things I say about non-Christians and about people of other religions and about atheists and about people who disagree with us politically. And I had one guy at another church say, the problem with you is you want everybody to like us. And God is my judge. He's not, thankfully, that, but God is my judge. And what I tried to tell him is, listen, I'm just trying to say what the Bible says about how we respond to people who hate us. Because it does say, it does say, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And do you know that when it says bless, it literally means speak well of? So while they're calling you names, you have nothing but good things to say about them and to them. When it says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all, we recognize everybody's not going to like us. You know, the, the New Testament shows us a contrast. It shows us a paradox that Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you too. But at the same time, it also says in Acts that the early church was gaining the favor of all the people. So there was a portion of the Jewish people who wanted to kill the Christians, but there was another portion, the larger portion, who thought they were incredible and said, we want some of what they've got. And that should be the case with us too. If people hate us, it should be in spite of our best efforts. If they hate us, it will be in spite of the fact of how we treat them with love and with grace. And then, and then Paul quotes from Proverbs that famous story about if someone hates you, feed them. 
If someone is mean to you, give them water. Therefore, you will heap burning coals on his head. And I've read people who've tried to change that and try to soften it and say, oh, well, you know, burning coals, that's like keeping somebody who's cold warm. No. Every scholar of of Greek will tell you that that is literally him saying, you want to get revenge on your enemies? Treat them so kindly that they will burn with shame for how they treated you. God knows. That's how you change people's hearts. And we saw an example of it this week, didn't we? We saw something we'll never forget. I don't know how many of you watched the news or saw this online. It's gone viral, of course, by now. But this young man named Brant John, brother of a man who was killed in his own apartment, through what can only be described as a tragic, bad judgment, a, a, a tragic case of, of, of bad judgment as this young police officer, Amber Geiger, comes home to her apartment complex, gets off on the wrong floor, walks into what she, she thinks is her apartment, sees a man there, pulls out her gun and shoots him to death. What a tragedy. And she's white and he's black and she's a police officer and he's an unarmed black man. And you know how that kind of case goes in our culture these days. You know what a flashpoint that is for people. And here this trial ends, and she's found guilty, and she's sentenced. And Brant John, this 18-year-old young man, gets a chance to speak to his brother's killer. The victim impact statement. It's just an opportunity to say what's on your heart. If you want to say burn in hell, you can say burn in hell. If you want to say I'll hate you until the day I die, you can say that. If you want to, you, there's only two rules. You can't threaten and you can't use profanity. Well, there's a whole lot of things you can do with that. And here this young man, 18 years old, gets up and says, I don't hate you, I love you, and I want what's best for you. I don't even want you to go to jail. I want good things for you. What I want for you is that you would know Jesus. And then he looks at the judge and says, can I give her a hug? And you don't see the judge, but you hear a pause, several seconds, and I'm, I'm sure the judge is thinking, if I let him get down off the stand and approach this young woman, is he going to strangle her? Is he going to attack her? And finally she says, Yes. And he gets up and he walks around and you see this young woman come from the side and just run into his arms and they embraced for what seemed like forever. And you can hear the sounds of weeping. I know if you haven't seen the video, it's, I'm not spoiling anything. You're still going to be incredibly moved. It, it's worth your time because what it is, is an incredible picture of grace. I'm reading about it in the Dallas Morning News, not a Christian magazine, but a secular newspaper. And it says... Nobody had ever seen grace like this. Reporters, attorneys, they're all crying because they've never seen anything like it. And he showed us in that moment. That is what love looks like. That is what it means to live out the gospel in a costly way. It doesn't solve all our problems, but what it does is it shows the world there's a better way. It shows the world there's a true God who can save us who can reconcile us, who can help us live in harmony so these kinds of things don't happen. And you may say, well, it's impossible. Nobody can be that way consistently. Yeah, on our own it is impossible. But look at that last passage. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know who did that the best? That was Jesus. Jesus experienced the ultimate evil poured out upon him And he met it with the ultimate good. 
and love one. Jesus claimed our hatred and our guilt and our shame, and He destroyed it with the power of His grace. You see, He did that not just so you could go to heaven when you die, but so that you and I could live a brand new life. Like He said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. He died for us to make us new people, new people who are capable of this kind of life. So what I'm urging you to do is say, Lord, change my heart. Change me like only you can. Here with my heart in your hands, make me more like Jesus. We sang that song just a moment ago. Can you pray something like that? Can you pray, Lord, I confess to you that I, I'm not a, I don't hate people, but I'm just lazy. I, I'm satisfied with the people I love, and I don't want to expand that influence. But Lord, change my heart. There are people who need your love, and, and I have the chance to reach them. Show me how. See, the scary thing is, when you pray something like that, things start happening. You get opportunities. But He'll do it. And you can change. And we can become the kind of church that sings a harmony the world has never heard before, but it's dying to hear. Would you do that?